Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith, so be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at docs pushback, trends, whether there is an observable greenium in sustainability-linked instruments, and how banks are shifting their underwriting practices. But first, the Levin wrap in high yield bonds, it's crickets, but loans have something to show for themselves. Though it's being considered mainly a US deal, with most buy siders looking at it out of their US offices, France-based telecommunications procurement outsourcer ETC Group is issuing an almost $1 billion tranche, chiefly in dollars. Nurax Farm, a pharmaceuticals manufacturer, has also brought an add-on to the market. The 175 million euro tranche is offered at 425 bips of Eurobor and is rated B3. In addition, Opti Group is rearing its head once more. The business supplies provider originally came to market in May with a 515 million euro TLB, which was pulled despite triple C level pricing and 2015 style docks, to quote buy siders. Though price talk wouldn't even look that attractive in today's market at an OID of 94 and 525 bips over Eurobor. LPC reported that the tranche has been reduced to 315 million euros and will be brought back to market, while the remaining 200 million euro tranche has been pre-placed. Sources have told Ninefin the 200 million euro tranche was placed with a single investor at 800 bips over Eurobor with an OID in line with market. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up. And here with me today, I have co-head of European Loans Research, Christine Tognoli. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Kat. Thanks very much. And co-head of European Loans Research, Janisha Amin. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for being with us today. So you both recently did a webinar for Ninefin on investor pushback. Uh, you cover a variety of topics in the presentation, which we'll cover in this pod and some more to come. Today, we're going to talk about documentation on both sides of the pond. So if you had to make a judgment between the US and Europe on the whole, which geography provides more protection? Traditionally, we'd say the European market would provide uh, extra or, um, you know, more protection on average. But given the amount of convergence there has been in the last few years, I'd say they're pretty on par. Um, on the whole, the US market is still probably more aggressive than the European market. But um, but there are certain, certain features that have certainly been driven by the European market. Um, and of course, you know, if there are some aggressive features that crop up in the US, they tend to make it to Europe and vice versa. Um, but, but generally speaking, the, the U.S. is probably still, um, on the whole, a, a bit more aggressive. That said, um, there are certain areas where the U.S. is probably still a bit tighter than Europe. So pricing actually is an interesting one. Um, in the U.S., it's typically you'll have one step down for the margin ratchet, whereas in Europe, Sometimes you get three proposed, uh, often it's pushed back to two, but one would be you know, highly unusual. And in Europe, 
We also see sneaking in sometimes a quarter return of deleveraging between each step down. So Europe is, is at least in terms of the margin ratchet, can be more aggressive. Um, another area is MFN. So that's the protection that existing lenders get in terms of new, uh, new debt coming in. In the US, it was actually uh, tighter than in Europe. So traditionally, it was 50 basis points. Some sponsors got 75 basis points, but 100 basis points was really a European feature. We do now see the US moving more towards Europe and 100 basis points you know, being, being seen in both markets. But um, interesting that people think the US is often more aggressive, but at least on those two instances, Europe has actually been um, the more aggressive market. And in terms of sort of the more strictly covenant type uh, features, things like contribution debt, um, available RP capacity amount where you can convert RP capacity to debt capacity. Those are concepts that largely started in the US market, but made their way to Europe. Interestingly, in the U when they started in the US market, they were generally unsecured permissions. Whereas when they were brought over to Europe, they were pretty much from the start permissions that were capable of being secured um, on the collateral on a peripassu basis, so dilutive debt permissions. Uh, whereas in the US, again, they're sort of catching up now with Europe. It's a bit of a ping pong um, in terms of, you know, a, a, a term is adopted here, made slightly more aggressive, and then that sort of leaks back over to, to the US market. Um, so it, it is becoming a bit more aggressive in the US now as well. Commonly, those permissions can be um, secured there as well. But traditionally, they were unsecured provisions that when adopted into the European market um, were sort of embraced by uh, European loans and um, also be, were capable of being secured. So, um, yeah, that's sort of... Um, an example of features that have gone back and forth between the jurisdictions and sort of each iteration becomes a little bit more aggressive. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our segment on ESG. And with me today is ESG analyst Jack David. Thanks very much for speaking with us today, Jack. Thank you, Kat. So following a recent ESG Primer webinar on ESG ratchets and sustainability linked KPIs put on by credit analysts Josh Latham and Alex Manlopoulos, we had a few questions come in from listeners. We discussed regulation in the SLB market last week and this week we want to know if the 9fin ESG team can see an observable greenium. So the short answer here is we don't really know because the sample size is so small and there hasn't been a lot of issuance um, you know, relative to other asset classes. So um, we have found research by Alpha uh, that over half the studies believe Greenium is justified, providing the structure and targets are robust and credible. Uh, another study, study carried out by researchers at the University of Zurich paired sustainability-linked bonds with non-labeled bonds with similar or identical characteristics from the same issuer. Sustainability-linked bonds were issued with a yield of 29.2 bips lower than the non-labeled equivalents on average. So some some sign of greenium here. Uh, in the past, we've explored ourselves whether there's a greenium in the deals. In the case of Telecom Italia, we believe is a green bond showing green, greenium features after the borrower secured its lowest coupon ever, coming at half their average cost of debt. Generally, we haven't found evidence to just there is a greenium in SLB issuance in high yield in terms of issuers historic deals compared to their new sustainability linked deals. 
How the other market conditions would come into play here, making a definitive answer difficult. It should be noted, however, that these deals are often oversubscribed. There is a desire to invest in something with sustainability features, but that isn't as prescriptive as a green bond. As sustainable investing increasingly enters the mainstream, this is something that investors might be incentivized to do more. Next up, we have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. Here with me, I have senior reporter Owen Sanderson. Thanks so much for being with us today, Owen. A pleasure as always, Kat. And today we're going to be discussing the underwriting issues facing European sell-side banks. Uh, Of course, any market participant will know the struggles um, that the primary markets have been facing recently. And a lot of those loans and bonds that were underwritten before the Russia-Ukraine invasion will be sitting on banks' balance sheets, uh, creating an increasingly large issue. Do you think I've summed up the situation there correctly, Owen? I think that sounds pretty much right. Um, At bottom, nobody likes to lose money and the banks that have underwritten pre-crisis transactions are down to lose quite a lot. Um, we've seen just today Credit Suisse announce uh, 245 million uh, loss on its leveraged finance book, um, and that it's still got six billion to chip away at, uh, having been trying to sell sell those positions down. So expect more pain as the rest of the European banks report. Uh, the U.S. banks have disclosed similar similar losses, and when you're losing that much money, are you in a mood to take on more risk? It's the big question. Mm. I, I did, before we launch into the detail of things, I was speaking to a buy-sider who, esti- well, a couple of sources have estimated that the underwritten backlog is 35 billion euros across high yield and leverage loans. And he kind of put that against total European high yield and said that it's sort of been an overblown issue to some extent. Do you think that the underwritten backlog is that serious? Are we? Should we really be worrying about it as much as we do? I think I'd broadly agree with that perspective. Um, no lesser person than Jamie Dimon, who obviously runs JP Morgan, estimated global uh, backlog at about 100 billion, so 35 billion in euros, including a few cross-border deals. Sounds plausible. And actually, yeah, among the large global banks, that's that's a manageable amount. It's it's much better than in previous. Um, cycles such as the global financial crisis where the banks had had considerably larger problems with that underwritten book they will get through it at some point the question is what does that mean for the market while they're working through that Mm, okay yes very very good to know we'll we'll see some major changes i assume um certainly ones that we've been writing about a bit more uh, at nine fin, such as a push into direct lending, but we're not going to talk about that too much today. So yeah, w- of course the the market has been able to offload some deals. It's just at extremely depressed OIDs. What what sort of deals have we been seeing in the market recently? The question I think is which end of banks' books are they uh, chipping away at? Um, do they get rid of the real? Uh, struggling credits um, first, the ones where they'll take the biggest hit, or do they hang on to those, hope that the market recovers down the road and um, work away at the pretty good credits where they're not taking a huge upfront loss. I think we're actually seeing a slight barbell effect. Um, If you look at 
uh, where, for example, Manager, Cleared, 86, uh, 888 Holdings, uh, those are perhaps some of the more difficult credits to have got done and the banks have taken those losses and probably happy to have them uh, off into the market. Uh, but the recent Theramex transaction um, was, we think, very well oversubscribed and um, you know the pricing came higher and higher and at uh, 94.75, I think there's a loss, but it's probably very manageable. Do you, do you think that there's already been a major change in the types of businesses that banks not will underwrite in the future? Do you think they'll push away from the those kind of work? Well, we call them worse, but perhaps less stable companies. Do you think that they've already shifted away from those? Uh, it's very hard to tell because there are a few data points on what is being underwritten. Um, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Fedrigoni. That's probably our, our latest point for banks are actually open for business. Uh, some of the banks on that are local institutions, but we've got a, a Goldman's and Morgan Stanley and Nomura. So th there are some international investment banks involved that are clearly willing to do that trade. But it's a known asset. It has an existing lender base. Um, it has top tier sponsors in place. Uh, so there's a lot to like about this. It's not it's not on the cusp. They have a very good line of sight to the levels for current Fedrigoni debt, and that probably helps them get comfortable underwriting this kind of asset. I think there's also a question about what does open for business actually mean? Um, clearly, Fedrigoni has happened, but um, we think it's quite likely banks are quoting levels to their good clients, the sponsors, but probably a lot of them are hoping not to be hit at those levels and hoping that they can say we're here for you at this price and they never take them up on it so is that open for business i'm not sure it is it's backing off using price and terms to get out of actually having to do transactions i wrote a piece on the underwriting engine kind of shifting gears um and i was desperately trying to pin down some sell siders to admit that they had completely stopped underwriting and i did manage to with a couple <laughs> off the record i can't can't disclose which banks they were but it's very very hard to get a sell side to to admit that they're not doing anything you know they're all we're we're you know we're intermediaries we're we're, we're helping our customers always we're always thinking about ways to assist our customers but i think one thing that was was quite telling was speaking to one senior outsider and asking him you know where's that business coming from this this business that you insist continues to happen is it coming from your clients or is it coming from you and I think it's very clear that there's there's no sell cider out there going to clients you know pitching opportunistic refinancings or anything like that at all it's as you said sponsors coming um you know the sell cider offering a certain level and and then yeah as you said <laughs> hoping that they won't take them up on it well the issue of M&A supply uh is definitely definitely a valid one um if debt is appreciably more expensive than some of the transaction sponsors would have taken on uh, before this year simply simply won't work simply won't hit their return targets um we think it's possible that as corporate valuations come down that strategic buyers will end up playing more and more of a role um in in acquisitions 
uh, most of the investment grade, large investment grade companies are actually in pretty good shape and tend to be very well funded. The investment grade market hasn't closed as, as leverage finance has. Um, so they would be often the natural acquirers for some of the assets that are in play at the moment. And, you know, again, that means down the road, uh, less leveraged loans, less high yield, and potentially nature will heal um, thanks to that ultimate lack of supply. But that could be a long time coming. Mm. Do you think it's a possibility that that will be offset with corporates just trying to dispose because of, you know, just the nature of being in a in a recession? A recessionary environment certainly should encourage corporates to think about the size of their business and their perimeter and whether they want to be involved in certain non-core assets. But again, if you're talking about some of these large IG companies, uh, their balance sheets are in, in pretty good shape um, unless there's a sort of activist in their shareholder register there's um there's not a lot of pressure to to move on some of these disposals and if if valuations aren't attractive because the sponsor community's not there or, or not there in size um then they'll probably just hang on i'd have thought owen thanks so much for chatting to me today is there anything else we should note on this topic well, I just wanted to touch on the term term loan A market, which seems to be uh, rearing its head again. In happier times, we saw uh, term loan A's reduced or removed from capital structures as um, there was strong such strong demand for the term loan B product from the investor community. Now it seems to be going the other way. So the Mass Mobile Orange merger uh, is going to come with 6.6 .6 billion of debt, much of which is going to be raised from the bank community and is not intended to be distributed. Um, the structure of the transaction is very similar to the Virgin Media O2 um, merger in the UK that we saw in, in 2020, which came with a huge, similar sized actually leveraged finance piece distributed in bond and loan format to the usual suspects. Um, now the banks are stepping up. Um, we've also, there's been some headlines about how that's happening on the Citrix LBO, which is a, a hung position largely in the US. Um, adding more TLA to that structure to help the banks uh, manage that exposure. And that's all we have time for this week. And if you do want to read more about some of these situations, head to ninefin.com slash insights, where you can see some of our content in front of the paywall, or you can drop us an email at team at ninefin.com. We're always keen to hear your suggestions for topics, ideas, your comments on our discussion and your feedback on the platform. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and share it. Tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcast. <laughs>